guys. Welcome back. It's episode 13, Ohio vs. Conspiracy. Today we're going to be talking about three different stories of conspiracies in Ohio, in Ohio history in the 20th century. You know, I was torn about doing this episode. A number of people suggested one or, or more of these topics, and we aren't going to reach conclusions on these stories. We're going to present three fascinating conspiracies with connections to Ohio uh, and leave it up to you guys to decide whether it's just a conspiracy theory or a reality. I got to give it up to my friends GoBus for for uh, supporting the show here in season three. Go to ridegobus.com. They're an intra-city bus service that provides really nice transportation, Wi-Fi, reclining seats, bathrooms, all that good stuff um, all over the, city, uh, the state of Ohio. So go check them out if you're looking to get around. You don't have your car. You just don't want to drive. Check out ridegobus.com. You know, the internet has been a boon for these conspiracy theories. They cut across all races, political leanings, socioeconomic status, and gender, uh, and the people that believe some of these these different stories that are out there. There seems to be more conspiracy theories than ever. Uh, and again, I, I really thank the internet for that. Um, you know, I was listening to a conspiracy podcast on NPR, uh, and they say conspiracy theories are as American as apple pie, going back all the way to the days of George Washington. I'm not really a conspiracy theorist myself, um, but these three stories that we're presenting today are really, really interesting and have really got me thinking and wondering about whether they could be true. First, we'll, we'll go to Dayton, Ohio, and we'll talk with Ray Shemansky, author, uh, a man who worked at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base for 38 years and wrote has written books about alien encounters and also aliens at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, a very popular rumor if you're a kid growing up on, in Ohio. We'll talk about that conspiracy theory, and we'll talk about uh, their connection, Wright-Patterson's connection to the Roswell incident of 1947. Second, we'll talk with Dean Narciso, a writer for the Columbus Dispatch about Columbus native Stanley Meyer. Meyer built a car that could run on water a dune buggy that that he said could run on water um and he took it all over the country and and then met a mysterious death in 1998 we'll talk about the story of the water car and lastly we'll talk to lane marcus uh, a scholar who's really a local expert on the jfk assassination its connection uh to a man from cleveland ohio named david ferry we'll talk about whether lee harvey oswald acted alone uh, and Lane will present some really interesting theories about what he thinks really happened when JFK was assassinated in 1963. Our beer for the episode today, we're going to the Toxic Brew Company. We're going to be going to Dayton, Ohio. Uh, they're located in the historic Oregon District, just east of downtown in Dayton. And today we're having the Hangar 18. It's a porter, 6.2% alcohol. Uh, it's got some coconut and, and, and you know taste to it, some coffee. It's a dark beer, as all porters are. Really good stuff. But Hangar 18 is supposedly the hangar where all of these aliens were, were housed and the technology and the flying saucer uh, and all that kind of stuff that you heard as a kid about the aliens. Hangar 18. Uh, you can go to ToxicBrewCompany.com. Again, go see them in Dayton. Really good beer and, and, and looks like a really cool place uh, to sit down and have a drink at their brew pub. And again, in the Oregon District. But we've got so much to get to today, guys. Three stories. We're going to be talking about conspiracy. Only three episodes left. And this is episode 13, Ohio vs. Conspiracy. 
Ohio View the World has been brought to you by GoBus. Hit up RideGoBus.com, check out their cheap rates and routes all over the Buckeye State. Next time you need a ride around the state of Ohio, whether it's northwest or down the Queen City of Cincinnati, northeast Ohio or southeast Ohio and all points in between, go to RideGoBus.com. Our first story today, we sit down with Ray Shemansky. Ray, who worked, like we said, at Wright-Patterson for almost 40 years, uh, since he retired in 2011, has been writing books. We'll talk about his years at Wright-Patterson and whether or not a very popular rumor any kid who grew up in Ohio in the 80s would remember that supposedly there's aliens at Wright-Pat. I, for one, very much believe that we are not alone. You look at the size of the universe and all the discoveries that we're making you know, on an almost annual basis, and it's really hard to believe that Earth is the only place with intelligent life. The issue we'll be tackling today is the crash at Roswell in 1947, a flying saucer allegedly crashing into the New Mexico desert, being found by a rancher, and then being turned over to the Army. Our first guest is an author and alien expert. Uh, you know, He's appeared on the History Channel, their show Ancient Aliens. Um, we sit down with Ray Shemansky to talk about his book, Fifty Shades of Greys, his years at Wright Pat, and the Air Force Base's connection to extraterrestrial life. Ray started working at Wright Pat, the massive Air Force Base in Dayton, in 1973. And it's right away when he first starts working there is when he first hears about the aliens. We ask Ray about his first week on the job. Well, it was January of 1973, and I was assigned a mentor. So during the first week, he wanted to show me where the local cafeteria was. And we were working in Building 22, which was a complex of two business offices connected to about a 200-foot-wide empty hangar. So we exited the business office and stepped into the hangar, and the first thing he says to me is, have you heard about our aliens? <laughs> now you can imagine we're in a dark hangar, and I really don't know this guy, and he's talking about aliens, so I had no idea what he was talking about. So we had kind of a several-minute conversation, and in that conversation he told me about a UFO crash out west, that the machine that the aliens were in and the aliens were brought to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base for examination and possible exploitation. Well, you can imagine I'm on the base, kind of mysterious all in itself, and then my mentor tells me that we have aliens on the base. So that's kind of where it all began for me uh, way back in January of 1973. It may be the most famous incident in UFO history it takes place in 1947, the summer of 47, in the New Mexico desert, outside of the city of Roswell, New Mexico, where there was an Air Force base, it's reported that an alien craft has crashed. We talked to, to Ray just about what happened at Roswell. What was found? Well, in 1947, uh, there was a ranch called the Foster Ranch, and it was about 90 miles northwest of Roswell, New Mexico, closer to a town called Corona. And there was a rancher there called Mac Brazel, and he was managing the ranch. And one day he was out with the sheep, and he noticed that the sheep were diverting from their normal route. And when he took a closer look, uh, he discovered uh, about a three-quarter mile long and several hundred feet wide strip of small pieces of metallic material. So uh, he picked up this material, and, and his first chance 
he drove it into Roswell, New Mexico, and he showed it to the sheriff to help him identify what it was he found. Okay. They looked at it and they decided that they would send two of their intelligence officers, Major Jesse Marcel and Captain Sheridan Cavett, back with the rancher to go collect as much of the material as they could find to see if there were any clues that would help them identify what it was that they found. The next morning they spent the entire day gathering up thousands of small pieces of this material, the largest of which was probably only about two foot by three foot. So that day they bring it back. It's been assessed now. And Colonel William Blanchard, who was the, the base commander, decided that this was something they'd never seen and it had to be part of a crashed flying saucer. So he authorized his public information officer, Lieutenant Walter Hout, to put out a press release and they released it to the Roswell Daily Record. And they turned that press release into a headlines that read, uh, Roswell Army Airfield recovers crashed saucer. Jesse Marcel was the Army intelligence officer who recovered the crash site materials. And he would later blow the lid off of this crash it's about 25 years, 30 years later, uh, when he finally talks with, with a journalist and an author. We ask Ray about Jesse Marcel, the man who was on the ground outside of Roswell, the first person from the Army to come in contact with this uh, wreckage, this debris, and what Jesse ended up saying about the crash. In interviews and affidavits, he said it wasn't of this world, and he based it upon some of the ad hoc tests that they performed. They tried to cut it, tear it, smash it with a sledgehammer, burn it. No matter what they tried, they could not make any impressions or change the form of that material. Now, Jesse was the air intelligence officer for the 509th Bomb Group. Now, why is this critical in the whole story? Well, the 509th Bomb Group is the same one that dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and they were the only nuclear armed force in the world at that time. And it was Major Marcel's job to know everything that flew, whether it was a, a weather balloon or it was an aircraft, uh, anything in the air that was part of his purview. And in an interview, Jesse said, I knew everything that was in the air. I knew what we had. I knew what the enemy had. And what we found in Roswell was not of this planet. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. Army officers say the missile found sometime last week has been inspected at Roswell, New Mexico, and sent to Wright Field, Ohio, for further inspection. Colonel William Blanchard of the Roswell Air Base refuses to give details of what the flying disc looks like. In Fort Worth, Texas, where the object was first sent, Brigadier General Roger Ramey says that it is being shipped by air to the AAF Center at Wright Field, Ohio. Not surprisingly, following that headline of a flying saucer being found, the Army changes its story. They quickly claim it was a weather balloon. They show all. They show what they allege to be some of the materials um, before they ship them off to Wright Field in Ohio, which is now Wright Patterson Air Force Base. We ask Ray just about what the Army said was found at Roswell in 1947. In 1947, uh, the day after the headlines hit. Uh, the story started to move uh, eastward uh, about as far as Chicago. 
And when that happened, as you know, a lot of the foreign press also got a hold of this. So the Air Force, the Army Air Corps at that time, was inundated with requests for information. So they had to quickly concoct a story to get, quote, the press off our back. Yeah. And to do so, they put out a story that what was recovered in Roswell was nothing more than a weather balloon. Those materials that were found at Roswell, they're sent to Wright Field in Dayton. And this is confirmed by multiple officials, multiple reports, that everything was sent to, to Wright-Patterson. The question we have for Ray, who worked there for so long, um, is why? Why were they sent to Wright-Pat? The materials laboratory at Wright-Pat was actually founded there in 1917. Wow, yeah. So, so by July of 1947, they had already been in business for 30 years. So they were world-class experts in understanding aeronautical materials. Further, they had not only in-house expertise and in-house equipment, but they also had secrecy oaths. So the people they assigned the investigation to were already sworn to secrecy. They had money to buy equipment or to hire other experts that they might not have on hand. They had facilities where they could hide this stuff away. They were behind locked and guarded fences. So it was an absolute perfect place to bring the materials. And there was probably no other place on the planet that was a better place to take those materials than Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. In the 1970s, Roswell finds its way back into the papers. Jesse Marcel, the man who was on the scene, gives an interview. He's older and he gives the information to a reporter. Um, the story had kind of gone away, but it comes back with a vengeance after Jesse Marcel finally talks. We talked to, to Ray, our guest. What did Jesse say? And in that interview, which was videotaped, Major Jesse Marcel said, whatever we recovered was not of this earth. Uh, he went through the ad hoc test that they performed. Uh, he went through the scenario where he was flown into Fort Worth with the material and photographed with material that had been substituted in uh, just for the photo op, uh, how he was told to keep his mouth shut and to never talk about it again. And Jesse said it was a cover-up. It never was a weather balloon that I recovered. Got a friend of the, of the show, great musician, Nick D'Andrea, uh, sings in, in a band called Doc Robinson, one of the real up-and-coming bands here in Ohio, one of my favorite bands. And one of my former favorite bands, Nick D and the Believers. I told him about Ray Shemansky and his book and the interview we we're doing. And Nick wanted me to ask something that I'd never thought of. Uh, and why do so many of these sightings seem to happen near nuclear facilities? Why do they seem to increase in numbers uh, after the detonation of the atom bomb you know, in 1945? You can go back and listen to our first episode from last season, Ohio vs. the Bomb, about the man who dropped the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima. Um, a man from Columbus, a great, a really great episode that we enjoyed doing with our friend Bruce Carlson, uh, the host of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, one of our favorite pods out there. But go find Ohio versus the bomb to, to hear that story. But we asked Ray, you know, about that is there are a lot more sightings after 1945. Uh, and he agreed it's a little odd. Now, here's what Roswell and the nukes have in common. 
if you look at a map of New Mexico, Roswell is the bullseye on the nuclear dartboard because to the northwest you have Los Alamos nuclear labs, uh, to the uh, southeast you have Alamogordo where they um, detonated the uh, bombs. Uh, you have White Sands Missile Range where, where you know, rocketry was going off and there's Roswell sitting right in the middle of all this thing. Now Roswell was home in 1947 to the only nuclear armed bombardment group in the world. Yeah. And so the 509 three. The 509. So if any extraterrestrial civilization was looking for the centroid of our tribal warfare, it was New Mexico and specifically Roswell. So it just, you know, I don't think that's a coincidence. It's and, not. And today there are just books and books of, you know, connections of people seeing UFOs over uh, nuclear facilities. And in fact, I go into an extended discussion of that uh, right here in Ohio, where we talk, where I talk about Fernald or what was called the National Lead of Ohio, which was a, uh, a nuclear uh, production facility down just outside Cincinnati. There's some great examples of alien visitation in recent decades. Um, especially as we get more and more um, connected with the internet, television. Um, but there's none more compelling to me than the Phoenix Lights incident of March 13th, 1997. If you're not familiar with the Phoenix Lights incident, go look it up. It's compelling stuff. Even the governor of Arizona said that he saw something that looked extraterrestrial that night. And it's seen by thousands of people. There's video. There's people who tell their stories. Um, but go look up the Phoenix Lights. We asked Ray about that. Uh, his book, Fifty Shades of Grays, goes into a lot of the most famous instances of, of alien contact. For my money, none are more compelling than the Phoenix Lights. We asked Ray about that incident in 1997. Uh, most definitely, um, the Phoenix Lights have tons of compelling evidence. And the reason is, it's not just one person. There are dozens and dozens of yeah. videos out there taken uh, right along the proper timeline, the date line, uh, taken in, in the proper locations. And it's by reputable people, you know, just uh, civilians who saw it from their house in Prescott or they were down in, in Phoenix or Mesa or wherever this thing flew. Uh, there were also some experts that had film and have very high quality film. And when you review the stories of the explainers, whether they be skeptics or debunkers, their stories cannot explain away all the videos. Now, it may explain away a particular video that was taken at a particular time from a different location right. at a certain angle, but it doesn't cover the hours that this thing was seen or eyewitness reports of it flying overhead. And, Thousands of people have reported it. So uh, that is very, very compelling video evidence. With more and more people having cell phone cameras in their pockets and so much more surveillance in general around the world, video surveillance, it's becoming more and more likely that indisputable evidence of alien visitation is coming. And imagine a world after we have proof of alien life. You know, maybe that makes us come together a little bit more. You know, does this dispute between India and Pakistan become a little less important in the big picture? Do our daily, you know, fights between Democrats and Republicans 
seem a little bit silly when you consider just how small they really are if we're not alone in the universe. How does that affect religion if we're not alone? Why does the government cover up these instances? If they, we have been visited by, by aliens before in the United States, the United States government has, has covered that up. We ask Ray, why? Why would they do that? Having investigated this for many years, I, I think the first issue is they have a problem that they can do nothing about. Yeah. The technology that has been demonstrated by the ships that have been observed and described far exceed the capabilities that we have, not only to just keep up with them in the sky, but to defend ourselves against these things should they go on the offensive. So imagine if I told you, uh, Alex, that tomorrow you are no longer doing your job, but you have to perform a heart transplant. I've just given you a job <laughs> out of the clear blue that you know you're not qualified, that, that you're never probably ever going to be qualified to handle. What are you going to do about it? Well, you know, think about the Department of Defense and particularly the Air Force. Their job is to keep the skies safe and clear for all of us. And clearly that can happen with what has been observed. So the first thing is, I want to deflect away the attention away from the fact that I've got a job here that I can't possibly execute. That makes sense. And I think the second principal idea behind why we would like to not tell the truth is, what if we are reverse engineering technology that we have had in our custody since at least 1947? that give you the technological superiority, you certainly don't want to give that away. So the best thing you can do in all cases is just to deny that it happened. Again to Ray Shemansky. Uh, we'll talk with him again uh, towards the end of the episode. Uh, but really great guy. We, he set up a, a meeting. We sat down in Springfield, Ohio. He lives out in, in the Dayton area. Um, and just a really cool dude. I uh, had a really good time talking to him. And he's working on a new book. Um, and, and like I said, go check his book out. We'll put a, a uh, link in the show notes to buy that. This next story is one I uncovered. It was actually from a random listener last year. A, a listener named Aaron Marshall. So, Aaron, if you're out there, thanks again. He emailed about our Ohio versus War episode from our first season, um, an episode about how Columbus played a role in stopping a war with Iraq in 1998. It's actually the only episode where I was the guest because I happened to be at this event. But he emailed us at G, uh, on our Gmail, OhioVTheWorld at gmail.com. So, if you have show ideas, hit us up at OhioVTheWorld at gmail.com. Uh, and just like Aaron did, get your idea on the show. He asked if I knew anything about Stan Meyer and his water car, Stanley Allen Meyer of Columbus, Ohio. I told him I did not, but I would look into it. And when I did, I was fascinated. Stan Meyer is an inventor who grew up in, in Columbus. And he actually graduated from the same high school I did, uh, Grandview Heights High School, um, which is an awesome school. Go Bobcats. Uh, it's actually where our studio, where we're recording this today. And my law firm is in Grandview. My home is in Grandview. And Stanley Allen Meyer graduated from Grandview. 
but Stan Meyer may have made one of the most important discoveries of the 20th century. It's said that he built a car that could run on water. It was a dune buggy, actually. But he built a fuel cell that no longer needed gasoline. This car could run on water. Um, and I've seen clips of it on YouTube, on the news. And the thing did run. We brought in a, a guest, Dean Narciso, from the Columbus Dispatch. Uh, and Dean was really gracious to sit down with us. He wrote an article about Stanley Meyer and his water car. I wrote the article in 2007. Um, cover story. We asked Dean, you know, who was Stanley Allen Meyer? Who was this guy who, who may have made one of the most important discoveries of the late 20th century? He grew up on the east side of Columbus. He actually moved to Grandview Heights, where we are now, and uh, he ended up going to Ohio State University, did not graduate, but he did attend and then went into the military. So, um, that's kind of his, his early life. Not much is known about that. He was married, um, no kids, uh, just an interesting kind of enigmatic character. He had uh, both, um, you know, uh, six foot three inches tall, a booming voice, was kind of eccentric. You know, I think he was kind of a tinkerer. He kind of did things on his own. So his employment was garage and his shop yeah. where he did a lot of his experimenting our guest dean narciso he still writes at the columbus dispatch but he said this story that he wrote in 2007 about stanley allen meyer and his water car uh, is one of the stories that he's most asked about people emailing and people calling wanting to know more and as i read his his story and read more about stanley i ended up being one of those people as well and reached out to him part of that story is, is dean actually he got to go see the dune buggy, the car that ran on water. Dean actually saw it. It's kind of cloak and dagger. Um, but we talked to him about that visit when he saw Stanley Allen Meyer's car. Being invited, doing a lot of digging first to find people who knew him and then being invited or maybe inviting myself <laughs> down to a uh, location, which I can probably say now we were reluctant at the time, near Washington Courthouse. It was yeah. a rural uh, area. Uh, Fayette County. Fayette County. And uh, we stopped in, and a friend and the guy who helped uh, in his laboratory, in Meyer's laboratory, invited us to his house. And we walked back to a, uh, an old shed, and the guy claimed that the dune buggy was there. And I, I walked into this shed. It was dark. They lit it up. And not only was that there, but all of his old computers, you know, these were 1980-era computers, um, and then underneath a tarp uh, was the dune buggy. And this friend, who was, I think, in his, probably in his 70s and retired, you know, showed it to us briefly and then whisked us away and said, uh, you know, that, that was it. And that's kind of how our story ended, you know, that the, that the dune buggy is still out there. The equipment that he used to allegedly fuel it with water is still, is still out there. It's a major breakthrough that will no doubt make motorists happy. And as Ralph Robinson explains, the Pentagon is also showing lots of interest in this project. Water has always been considered a precious commodity, but Stan Meyer's invention may make it even more valuable. He has developed what's called a water fuel cell. It has taken the place of his old gas tank. The water fuel cell breaks down water molecules into oxygen and hydrogen. The hydrogen is used to run his dune buggy. Now, I don't care if you use rainwater, well water, city water, ocean water. If you don't have any fresh water, go ahead and use snow. 
if you don't have any snow available to you, they use salt water because there's no adverse effect to the fuel cell. Myers started working on this project four years ago. He's not a scientist. He isn't even a chemist. In fact, he never graduated from college. Myers was determined, he says, to design something to protect this country from oil embargoes. And we have calculated that if we take the dune buggy from Los Angeles to New York, we would roughly use 22 gallons of water. The Pentagon flew a lieutenant colonel in last week to look at Myers' invention. There's talk of possibly using it in the Star Wars defense program and to run army tanks. Myers is currently perfecting a water fuel cell for cars. It will cost about $1,500. He says it won't need any maintenance and you won't have to replace it. It's actually a fuel cell uh, that Stanley built and patented uh, that will replace the spark plugs and allow the car to run on water. I don't know enough about what's going on under the hood of a car uh, to, to tell you one thing or another. I don't even, I don't change my own oil, can't change my own brakes. Um, but we talked to Dean. You know, what was it about about Stanley's alleged discovery uh, that could explain you know how this could work in, in theory? An internal combustion engine, of course, right? Is 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 how most vehicles work. This was equivalent to that except it used instead of spark plugs it used a special in a fuel injector that was built around the process of electrolysis so uh, using current flowing through water electrical current flowing through water uh, Meyer had created this um, equivalent of, a, of a, a spark plug that would electrically distill the hydrogen or separate the hydrogen from uh, the oxygen and create a mix that would then be f pushed into this combustion chamber of the of the dune buggy's engine and presumably fuel allow this thing to, to operate. Stanley Myers just outside of Grove City, Ohio, a southwestern suburb of Columbus uh, where he has his his lab and he claims that he got visited by people from oil producing nations in the Middle East uh, by people from the U.S. government and the Pentagon, uh, from the British government. And he was a pretty paranoid guy. I uh, claimed that many of his prior you know, inventions had been stolen from him, uh, and he kept things very much under wraps. Plus, he always thought that this, you know, this the technology could make him a target for the oil industry and for you know, government. People who wanted to keep the status quo really didn't want a water car, a car that could, you know, go across the country in 20 gallons, like Stan says. We talked to, to Dean Narciso about that paranoia that I think a lot of inventors have, but that Stanley certainly, certainly was guilty of. He felt, now whether it was accurate or not, he felt he had come upon a, a huge revolutionary discovery, being, you know, this the device that could actually fuel a car on water. So naturally, he would be he would be paranoid that the wrong people would get it. Um, so I mean, one of the classic examples when he's working in this Grove City um, shop, which is just north of downtown Grove City, was uh, calling, and we got this from the uh, police reports in Grove City that he he called, uh, he got a package. He didn't know what it was. It turns out he actually ordered this, and this was parts and equipment for some of his his designs. But he called the, the police, they called the bomb squad, and they came and they detonated this box, which turns out to be his own equipment. <laughs> so, so, he, so he was wary of people stopping in and you know, questioning what he was doing. 
car that runs on water instead of gasoline. Can it be true? Well, inventor Stanley Meyer made an announcement today in Colorado Springs. He says he's come up with a device that will hook up to any engine and allow it to run on good old H2O. News 13's Kurt Goff tonight on the possible impact of the water fuel cell. Stanley Meyer says the answer to dependence on foreign oil lies all around us. In seawater, tap water, and rainwater. Any kind of H2O, he says, can power just about every type of engine. How? With the water fuel cell. It fits in the palm of his hand, but it could revolutionize the world. You're talking about a pollution-free, totally new source of energy, the voltage disassociation of water. The fuel cell converts water into a gas, hydrogen-oxygen, which is released in the form of thermo-explosive energy. Meyer's invention was introduced in Britain earlier this month, and now the Brits have followed him here. We recently took a scientific delegation to witness Stan's work to really evaluate it and came back saying this is one of the most important inventions of the century. The car begins making some news in the 1990s. Various events and, and people come from across the world to see it. You know, Stan Meyer's invention could absolutely change the world. I think it's ridiculous the car, the world's cars still run on, on oil, this non-renewable fuel, uh, when there's technology out there that exists to get rid of it. We're seeing more and more of it um, on our streets today. But we can't keep going on like this. The entire world cannot keep running on, on oil forever. So no offense to our friends in, in Israel, but don't you think it would make you know the Middle East a little bit less of a political priority if the world didn't run on their oil? I very much doubt that the United States government would bend over backwards to support a, you know, a tyrannical regime like the one in Saudi Arabia if we weren't dependent on their oil. This could change everything. And the fact is that this car did run. It was shown in shows, and we asked uh, our friend Dean just about, yeah, he's, the car ran. Of course, dune buggies do operate, and engines do operate, and could actually operate by distilled hydrogen and oxygen. Uh, it's just the question was, how is this happening? Some people said, he the roll bar on the dune buggy was filled with gasoline you know uh, mm -hmm. others others said he was he was manipulating it in other ways um but it did actually it did actually operate it, it ran up and down this so there was physical visual evidence of this thing operating stan meyer in the late 1990s is moving forward with his water car and his water fuel cell and he's meeting with two belgian investors they'd scheduled a meeting actually at the grove city cracker barrel on March 20th, 1998. These two investors were going to fund a research center in Fayette County, just southwest of, of Columbus, uh, to build these fuel cells here in Ohio, to give him a lab and a research center to perfect it, and then take it to market. And when they go to a, uh, have a meal at the Cracker Barrel, he's there with his brother and the two Belgian investors. We asked Dean Narcissa, what happens next? The, the investors, uh, both two men from Belgium, um, Stephen Meyer, the brother, or, or uh, yeah, the brother, and then uh, Stanley, the four of them were in the Cracker Barrel right off of I-71 in Grove City. They Somehow they ordered, uh, of all things, cranberry juice and were toasting to the success. Uh, Stanley Meyer took a sip or two and immediately felt odd. According to his brother Stephen, he walked out into the parking lot, fell to his knees, and told his brother that they poisoned me. He was taken to a hospital and eventually passed away.
coroner's report ruled that it was a, a brain aneurysm. The question from skeptics was, was the brain aneurysm caused by some kind of poison that couldn't be traced? Stanley Allen Meyer is dead. March 20th, 1998. He claims that he was poisoned at the Grove City Cracker Barrel. Sounds a little crazy when you say it out loud. Dean looked into this case, and it was a case that was open for months. He read the police reports. You know, the Grove City Police produced uh, all kinds of documents, interviews. Um, they you know talked to more than a dozen people. They even talked to those Belgian investors who were there at the Cracker Barrel. And they pursued the case for months, and ultimately... Um, the case basically, as far as they were concerned, was closed. We talked to Dean Narciso about the investigation, about what was found, and, and was Stanley Meyer poisoned? Yeah, they had it open for several months. Um, they did a thorough investigation. We, we got the entire investigative packet and reviewed it. The one odd thing that was missing was uh, audio interviews, uh, audio recordings of these two Belgian investors. Apparently they did interview them but for some reason the audio tapes they had everybody else's audio tapes except these two so <laughs> there was there so there was no real visual record you know audio record of what you tried to reach out to those those in belgian investors we you? did from the columbus dispatch newsroom we called uh uh to a number at the company where one of the investors worked and never never heard back uh they never returned calls maybe they just didn't maybe the language barrier was different i don't know yeah, I mean, I feel like Steven said he, he didn't trust, or yeah, his brother said he didn't trust those guys. I can't, he said like he called them after he died and they were like not surprised or something like that. I can't it, remember. Exactly. He called him the day after his brother died and said, uh, you know, this is what happened and they just didn't seem to react, which he thought was odd. You know, I've been fascinated by this water car and Stan Meyer for the last few months telling people about it and... and you know, Stan had patents for this fuel cell. They've expired since since he died, you know, some 20, uh, 21 years ago. But I've told people about it, and they say, okay, yeah, it sounds like a great invention. Why hasn't anyone else reproduced it? You know, if the patents aren't protected, and this technology actually works, and someone or some company should have reproduced it. That's a great question. It's a question I can't answer. But it is a question that we also put to our guest, Dean Narciso. The patents only went so far. The patents didn't detail precisely what the secret sauce was that would allow for what some people called kind of an electri- electrical resonance in this spark plug device um, in the chamber itself that created, if you if you look online, you'll see like a frothy mix of yeah. of hydrogen and water, you know, of water that actually was was thrust into the combustion chamber. So so that secret was was never released through the patents and and that's why i think a lot of people have tried and failed dean wrote this article for the dispatch over 10 years ago about stan's death it's a front page story called the car that ran on water and he still gets emails and people like me reaching out to him and there's all kinds of stuff about stanley allen meyer on youtube and on the internet that you can read some more conspiratorial than others um, some debunking his technology, some saying that he was poisoned by the government, poisoned by the you know uh, Arab nations, um, all kinds of conspiracy theorists out there 
on this one. Uh, but it is an interesting case, I, I gotta say. It's really, it really captured my imagination. Um, and we asked Dean why he thinks people are so intrigued by Stanley Meyer's car. How he thinks, you know, how did Stan Meyer die? Um, and just about writing this story. To be able to travel cross country on a 20 gallon tank of water is captivating. And uh, in, of course it has huge repercussions um, for geopolitical conflict, etc. But pe- people want to hang on to things like this that, that are life-changing, that are um, potentially uh, true, even if they know inherently in their hearts, in their minds, intellectually, that, that, that it's impossible. We'll never, we'll never know how he died. Um, and I don't know that I can, I don't know that I'm in a position to say how he died, but it's, it certainly created a, an interesting cloak and dagger type, uh, story that, uh, that people are really drawn to. Thanks for listening to Ohio V the World. Every episode this season, we will bring you an Ohio History Connection Minute that is highlight the work being done to spark discovery of Ohio's stories. The Ohio History Connection, formerly the Ohio Historical Society, preserves and shares the history of the state of Ohio. In each episode, we'll talk with an employee of the OHC or someone from the over 50 sites we manage across the Buckeye State. I urge you to visit our museum, the Ohio History Center in Columbus, and become a member. Go to ohiohistory.org slash join. So thanks for listening. Hope to see you at the History Center this year and go to ohiohistory.org slash join for membership info. Special thanks again to Dean Narciso, Columbus Dispatch. You can still read his stories uh, every week in the Columbus Dispatch. Uh, we got to keep print media alive. So I'm a subscriber to Sundays um, to my front door. I still love the newspaper uh, and they do valuable work uh, in, in the central Ohio community. Uh, so you know, if you can, subscribe to your local newspaper, even if it's the online subscription, um, and keep it alive. But today, on today's Ohio History Connection Minute, we're talking with Jameson Pack again, finishing our conversation. Jameson is the chief marketing officer for the Ohio History Connection. She's done a great job with the new Ohio Champion of Sports exhibit, which again, I encourage you to go see at the Ohio History Center. Just opened uh, this month in March of 2019. Really cool exhibit. Go check that out when you get a chance. But one thing, when I joined the board of the Ohio History Connection, people always ask me, well, "When I, you know, what is that?" And I'd say, "Well, it used to be called the Ohio Historical Society." And then people go, "Oh yeah, of course, of course, I know that." Um, we talked to Jameson because she was there when they made this name change to the Ohio History Connection. It's something that I've gotten a lot more used to, um, and I think ultimately for the future will be a great move. Uh, but we talked about. You know, wasn't how scary that must have been when they decided to change it and when Jameson was the one who had to implement that change. You know, the Ohio Historical Society started in 1885. You know, I mean, Rutherford B. Hayes was on the board uh, back then. So it's a name that was in place for, you know, over 125, 130 years before Jameson Pack, chief marketing officer, it lands on her desk that she's got to execute this change. We just talk about that happened in 2014 and how we believe changing it to the Ohio History Connection has been for the best. So we changed the name in 2014 after um, 
doing a great deal of research as an organization. We had about 30 years of membership data. Uh, in addition, we did uh, research on um, what, what people liked about uh, the Ohio Historical Society, our former name, and what they didn't like. And particularly, we focused on two audiences, membership and the general public, because as one of our objectives is, is to get more people interested in history, the general public and our membership both um, couldn't relate to the Ohio Historical Society. And we really do see our job as connecting Ohioans to Ohio history. So um, it was in 2014 that we decided to change the name. And with that, we also changed uh, the way we communicate to the public. We can talk about history, but we do it with a modern voice. And that is one key way that we work to be relevant and um, to connect folks to ideas that are happening now, connect them to similar ideas, events, people, and places that happened in the past. How nervous, like, with the day it changed, like, when, when that just kind of... Weren't you scared? Well, you know, with <laughs> everything in history, there's always a great backstory. Yeah, um, uh, yeah it was... It was a little unnerving because we had uh, gone, uh, we had intentionally arranged editorial board meetings with all of the prominent papers in Ohio, and um, parallel to that, we had uh, sent out a member communication. We did not forecast reporters being on the member communication. And we had a paper, um, the actually the Columbus Dispatch, Columbus Dispatch, excuse me, um, decided to run with it, and so they broke the story, even though we had had this greatly orchestrated uh, unveiling, yeah, effort. That <laughs> nonetheless, um, we received uh, excellent editorial support. We received um, feedback from our membership that was largely supportive. We also received feedback from people that just don't get it. They didn't get it. They didn't understand. Um, the one thing, you know, about certain folks that love history is they also like thing, you know. We, tradition. Yeah, the tradition of the name and the equity of the name. And that's something that we recognize. But when you're looking at turning more people onto history, you have to speak their language. You have to go to them. And you have to do it in a way that makes sense to new audiences, not just the ones that you have. So we've worked really hard to demonstrate to our current membership that this isn't an abandonment. We're not going to change our core values. This is actually about appealing to more people and getting more people to care as passionately as you do about history. Thanks to Jamison Pack for joining us again. Go check out the Ohio Champion of Sports exhibit at the Ohio History Center. Uh, it's open now, and you can go to ohiohistory.org for more information, or just go to the, the museum on uh, East 17th, right by uh, I-71. Really cool, great for kids, adults, sports fans, non-sports fans alike. Um, go check that out. Here is a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. 
from Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 5 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Vice President Lyndon Johnson <clears throat> has left the hospital in uh, Dallas, but we do not know uh, to where he has proceeded. Uh, presumably, he will be taking the oath of office shortly and become uh, the 36th president of the United States. You can't talk about conspiracies without talking about JFK. It's the mother of all American conspiracy theories. You know, these the number of people who believe a conspiracy occurred that Lee Harvey Oswald did not act alone on November 22, 1963. And that number was 81% of Americans in 1976. It was still 81% in, in the early 2000s, 2001. Today that number is in the low 60s, but it's still universally accepted. Um, and it crosses all lines, Democrats, Republicans, uh, all races, genders, that most people in this country believe that a conspiracy happened to kill our president. Today we sit down with Lane Marcus, a JFK scholar, um, to discuss the connection with Cleveland, Ohio native David Ferry, his connection to, Dave, to Lee Harvey Oswald, to the mafia that could have been involved in this, the CIA, was he a CIA operative, and of course his connection to the JFK assassination. You know, David Ferry, the subject of this story, uh, he's played by Joe Pesci in Oliver Stone's JFK movie. Uh, Pesci does a great job. And Ferry was a person of interest after the assassination. He claimed to have never met Oswald, and although many years later that was proven to be a clear lie. And when the investigation turned to New Orleans, uh, and, and the prosecutor down there, Jim Garrison, uh, and some of Ferry's cohorts, you know, it's exposed that they were involved in a, in a Fidel Castro assassination plot. And in 1967, when charges and, and indictments are starting to be handed down by the New Orleans prosecutor's office, District Attorney Jim Garrison, Ferry turns up dead within a week. We talked to Lane Marcus about a couple of important facts. If you choose to believe there's a conspiracy, you know, Mr. Marcus doesn't believe, honestly, that Lee Harvey Oswald had anything to do with the actual shooting. Uh, if you're able to prove that Lee Harvey Oswald was a government asset, a government agent, um, or at least an asset, then of course there's a conspiracy. If there's two shooters, three shooters, then of course there's a conspiracy. Um, and there's a lot of evidence to this you know, that we ended up having to, I've avoided this question for a long time. Uh, just accepted that Oswald was the first shooter because it's much easier to live your life that way. But we asked Lane Marcus, talk about three reasons why Lee Harvey Oswald wasn't the killer. Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald did not act uh, alone in killing President Kennedy. Uh, I don't believe Lee Harvey Oswald actually fired any shots at all. Uh, the best evidence to prove that, first and foremost, is the Zapruder film that shows Kennedy's head going back into the left, as we've heard many times. Uh, the second thing would be uh, all the confessions, but there's been dozens of confessions um, of important people. And so when you look at all their confessions together, it, it really uh, clarifies the picture and people are confessing to things that there's no way they could have had independent knowledge of if they didn't do it themselves. And then I would say the third thing is Oswald's life. So you want to say, you know, why did Oswald uh, not act alone or did Os was Oswald not the lone nut? Just look at his life. Uh, you know, he goes 
into the Civil Air Patrol at 15? If he's supposed to be some crazy Marxist, is he really going to be trying to go work for the United States government? Uh, and this is at the height of the Red Scare. So then he goes to Russia, comes back. Guess what his first job is when he comes back? He works for a, uh, a map-making firm uh, doing work for U-2 spy planes. Uh, security clearance required. And he actually was not interviewed by the CIA when he returned. Anytime anyone would go to the Soviet Union, they got a courtesy call from the CIA, and he actually, uh, there, were no, there were no such files because uh, he wasn't part of a regular operation. David Ferry's born in 1918 in Cleveland, Ohio. He goes to school. He, he's a pretty interesting kid. He wants to join the Catholic Church as a priest. We talked about David Ferry growing up in Cleveland, his troubled youth, um, and everything that he went through, um, and the person that he became really comes out of the tragedies and the victimization that he suffered when he was in Cleveland. David Ferry went to Cleveland St. Ignatius High School. He then uh, he went to a lot of, lot of academic institutions up in Northeast Ohio. St. Ignatius, he went on to John Carroll. And then uh, from there, uh, he went to uh, Baldwin Wallace as well. He was in seminary for a while. Um, he, uh, he was a victim of uh, sexual molestation as a child in the Catholic Church. He then went on to molest others. Uh, and uh, in, in his life. The, the molestation early on eventually in the whole Catholic Church scenario led him to, to move to New Orleans uh, and pursuing a job with Eastern Airlines where he was a pilot starting in uh, 1951. Our guest Lane Marcus is going to lay out a version of events that the New Orleans and Dallas crime boss, mafia boss, Carlos Marcello is at the center of the plot to kill Kennedy. He's closely associated with uh, the subject of today's show, David Ferry. He knows Jack Ruby, the man who would kill Lee Harvey Oswald two days after the assassination. And Marcello hated the Kennedys. We asked Lane about the mafia connections to the JFK assassination, and just why would Carlos Marcello and the mafia want him dead? He had a passionate hatred for the Kennedys, and that started basically when Robert Kennedy was investigating him for racketeering and basically just a crusade against the mafia. What happened is uh, RFK illegally deported uh, Marcello to Guatemala. They just picked him up and dropped him off in the middle of the woods, him and his lawyer, okay? And so he, he broke three rubs in the ordeal. He had to hike back, and uh, he eventually was able to get back into the United States. You know who flew him back in? David Ferry. And, and Marcella is at, Marcello's actually on, uh, I said Marcella, Marcello is actually on record as uh, confessing to, to all these things to his prison uh, roommate, uh, Jeff Van Lanningham. And all these records are available. They, they won't publish them online, but if you go to the National Archives, you, you, can, you can read the transcripts. They won't let you listen to the tape. You can read the transcripts of all of these conversations with Marcello confessing, this, setting up the murder and why he did it. If David Ferry is working with the CIA, then he becomes a major person of interest. We asked Lane to talk about Cleveland, Ohio's David Ferry, his connections to the mafia and the CIA while living in New Orleans in the 1960s. The best proof of Ferry's involvement is that the CIA itself, during the House Select Committee on Assassinations, uh, uh, Victor Marchetti uh, admitted it. 
uh, on record that David Ferry was a CIA asset in the summer and fall of 1963. So the government's official position is that he is. Now, will they admit that today? I don't know, but it's in the records. Um, Ferry's working for the CIA, leading and training the anti-Castro Cuban exiles to prepare them for the Bay of Pigs invasion in a base north of uh, Louisiana, actually, um, Slidell, Louisiana. Then he, uh, so then he goes and he works uh, full-time for Guy Bannister, who, he was the special agent in charge of the FBI office in Chicago, Guy Bannister was. Came down to New Orleans, he worked on a special assignment with the police force, he was an alcoholic, he got fired. Super anti-communist guy, he actually ran, he was the head of the anti-communist anti league of the Caribbean, Guy Bannister was. So when he uh, got fired by the New Orleans Police Department, Guy Bannister started his own private investigation firm, and he also became a CIA asset and started working with the CIA to train these Cuban exiles. So David Ferry worked directly for Guy Bannister. And Bannister and Marcello are working together because just to zoom out a little bit, there is a, uh, a project going on called ZR Rifle. That was the name of it. And basically the idea was for the CIA using the mafia, using the mafia hitmen and the mafia resources so that it looked like the mafia did it, but the CIA, you'd be using the CIA to cover up. The CIA and the mafia working together hand in hand with anti-Castro uh, exiles were, were going to uh, assassinate Castro. So this was a plan to assassinate Castro in an open vehicle in, in public in an American street in front of people, right? Or I mean in a Cuban street in front of people. And so what happened is pe people think, well, how could all these different things be working together? Well, the, the mafia and anti-Castro Cubans and uh, uh, the CIA were already working together on ZR Rifle. So they just took that project and turned it. And then all you need is the permission of the people who are still in power. Now all you need is LBJ to say, yeah, this is good. Let's do that. And then you just have to find a reason to pitch to the Warren Commission as to why they should lie to the nation. There is Lee Oswald. He's been shot. He's been shot. Lee Oswald has been shot. There's a man with a gun. Absolute panic. Absolute panic here in the basement of Dallas Police Headquarters. Detectives have their guns drawn. There is no question about it. Oswald has been shot at point blank range fired into his stomach. Jack Ruby, the Dallas nightclub owner, shoots Lee Harvey Oswald on Sunday morning, two days after he's alleged to have assassinated President Kennedy. It happens on live TV. A shock nation watched as Ruby separates himself from, from the, the media there as Oswald's brought out of the basement of the jail and he's shot. Oswald was being taken to a secure facility uh, and really was one of the last chances someone from the public would have to get to Oswald. But Jack Ruby was involved in the mafia. He was involved with Carlos Marcello. He ran a strip club. Why would he kill Lee Harvey Oswald? He wasn't some kind of super political person or a giant Kennedy supporter. So I always found that odd. And plus, you know, my research and talking with Lane and, and looking into it, Ruby and Oswald likely knew each other. They'd been seen together in, in the year in the summer leading up to this, uh, this incident. And that really changes things for me. If Jack Ruby knew Lee Harvey Oswald. That's crazy. Why would he kill him? We talked to Lane about Jack Ruby. So yeah, so R Ruby is a lieutenant in uh, Marcello's crime family. 
He runs the strip club uh, on Carlos Marcello's behalf in, in Dallas. And really his main job in Dallas is not to run a strip club, it's to own the Dallas Police Department. So Jack Ruby's responsible uh, on behalf of Carlos Marcello for bribing all the cops and for having a very close relationship with all the police. Uh, Ruby and Oswald were friends, that's because they were in the same circle. They were all working for Guy Bannister. So, uh, and, and so Guy Bannister worked with Carlos Marcello on ZR rifle to kill, uh, to kill Castro. Same thing, David Ferry's right there in that ZR rifle project. And then Jack Ruby, he's not part of, CIA, of ZR rifle. Jack Ruby is not a CIA asset. Jack Ruby is one of Carlos Marcello's people. And so they all came into contact because they were working on, you know, uh, in, in the same orbits. Um, Ruby was supposed to set up Oswald to be killed by the Dallas police. That was that was why he had to pull the trigger himself. So that the whole idea of the Tippett killing was let's get the police really mad that, that you know they just lost one of their own, so they'll come in guns blazing and just kill this guy. Uh, but Ruby had to kill him himself, or else he was going to be killed. The idea that I was always told, and that's been played out you know through history, is that Lee Harvey Oswald was a Castro supporter in Cuba. He was a Soviet supporter, and that's why he killed uh, President Kennedy. He spent time in the Soviet Union. His wife was Russian. She, he brought him back to the States with him. Um, but one thing Lane and, and some other some books that we read really opened our eyes to is, what if Oswald wasn't pro-Castro? What if he wasn't you know, a, a, an actual Marxist? What if he wasn't, you know, what if he was actually anti-communist? Then he literally would have no motive. Um, that's nice to say, but what evidence is there that he wasn't actually a communist supporter? Uh, he makes some overt acts in the months leading up to the killings in public that he was a Marxist. He goes on TV, goes on radio, hands out pamphlets, gets arrested uh, for supporting pro-Castro literature in downtown New Orleans. Fair Play for Cuba was the name of the uh, the front organization. Um, but that address actually, you know, it had an address on those pamphlets to Guy Bannister's office. Guy Bannister, who we'll talk about, a former CIA guy who is the head of the anti-Castro movement. So why is, is Oswald out there by himself handing out pamphlets and causing trouble and getting himself in the records on TV, radio, and even with a police report for supporting Castro? Um, and, you know, and it's really interesting stuff that summer in New Orleans. Uh, and we talked to... To Lane, to Lane Marcus about, you know, Oswald. This was he this Marxist? Well, right, because if he's if he's pro Castro, then that's supposed to be the reason for the assassination. So, so Ferry and Bannister in the summer of 1963, their whole job is to make it is to build a case and to build a record of why Lee Harvey Oswald is a uh, is a communist and loves Castro. So they're doing things like having him, uh, you know hand out pamphlets for fair play for Cuba, but not just hand out pamphlets, hand out pamphlets and cause a fight uh, such that it causes a scene. Did you know that he was the only member of fair play for Cuba in New Orleans? There, there were no other members. So he's arrested there. He goes on TV. You know how hard it is to get a pro-communist person on TV in, in 1963, but uh, it happened in New Orleans. He did some radio as well. And the big, the biggest thing, he worked for Guy Bannister. Guy Bannister is the head of the anti-communist league of the Caribbean. Uh, he joined the Civil Air Patrol. He joined the Marines. Right? So uh, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't really compute. Uh, 
In the early 1990s, PBS, uh, the show Frontline, still one of my favorites uh, programs on television, their investigative uh, program, you know, it confronts a scholar who insisted that Oswald acted alone and insisted that he never knew David Ferry. But Frontline and PBS uncovered a photo eight years before the assassination where David Ferry was leading a civil air patrol unit in Louisiana and right, you know, next to him at this barbecue is Lee Harvey Oswald and the Louisiana Air National Guard. Ferry was his instructor. It's pretty clear they knew each other. Uh, it's not just a photo, it's, it's testimony um, and people that saw them together said that they were very close. But Ferry told the investigators after the assassination he didn't know Oswald. And they believed him, or they didn't follow it up any further. Um, and if Ferry's a CIA operative, and he's you know the one who's hanging out with Oswald, it does raise some questions. We asked you know our guest Lane Marcus, is it true that Ferry did know Oswald and that he lied to investigators? Why did the police ask Ferry if he knew Oswald? Why did they even ask him? Because Oswald had David Ferry's library card with him when he was picked up. So, okay, I mean, why do you have his library card with him if you don't know him? So, um, they absolutely knew one another. There's a photo of them together in the Civil Air Patrol. Uh, there are more than nine people uh, on record as seeing them together in the summer of 1963 in New Orleans. Uh, it's, it's, it's indisputable if you look at the facts. Oswald talking to the reporters the day after the assassination, asking for a lawyer, acting confused, saying he was a patsy. But Oswald was in the Texas Book Depository that day. He worked there. There were prints found on part of the rifle, you know, but a lot of some other fingerprints. Actually, it was a palm print. Uh, investigators never mentioned the existence of, of the prints until two days after he's killed. You know, they, they tell all kinds of incriminating evidence that they have in press conferences even while he's still alive. And it wasn't until after he's killed that they bring up, oh, yeah, and we have prints on the rifle. Um, you know, some of this other stuff that they're saying proved to be not true uh, before. But now, why wouldn't you mention that you have these prints? That's a pretty important piece of evidence against Oswald. Uh, but Lane mentions, you know, that agents came and took print from, from Oswald's body after he died. Um, you know, I couldn't verify that myself, but the idea is that maybe the prints were later planted on that rifle. And, you know, that's why they're so inconclusive. But we ask Lane Marcus, our guest, you know, who did shoot that day? If it wasn't Oswald, uh, then who was it? So uh, Lee, Lee Harvey Oswald says that he was sitting in a break room uh, drinking a Coke 
at the time. He works at the Texas School Book Depository. Now, he just started working there. That gets into a whole different conversation of what, how did he start working there? Why was he there in the first place? Which gets into this guy named George DeMornschild. And it gets into this guy named uh, D.W. Bird, who had just bought the building shortly before. He's a big Texas oil guy, but but that's a that's a, a deeper dive. Um, Lee Harvey Oswald, I do not believe shot, and the primary reason why I believe he did not shoot is because he did not have any nitrate on his hands when they did the nitrate test with the paraffin wax that they used to do back in the day. He didn't have any on his hands to show that he had fired a weapon. Um, Oswald was not, uh, you know, people say, oh, he had the score of marksman in the military. Well, marksman's the lowest score. Marksman's like putting your name on the SAT. Uh, and then, you know, I've heard people say, well, if you go up in the Texas School Book Depository and you look up there, I mean, he definitely could have hit him. It's not far. Right. Sure. But could he have hit him three times and one of those times be a magic bullet and then a fourth bullet too, they hit the, they hit the pavement, right? Who fired? If, if that's what you want to know, here's the thing. Uh, I cannot tell you who fired the bullets from what spots specifically. I just don't know. But I know who the players are after having done this research for years and, and read all, looked at all the primary evidence. But there's somebody in the front, uh, Grassy Knoll, uh, possibly someone on top of the Daltex building. There's between, between anywhere from three to five shooters, uh, but probably three. Uh, and uh, I think two shots were fired from the back, one missed, one hit him in the back. Uh, one shot uh, was fired from the front that hit JFK in the neck. One shot hit the windshield. The windshield was broken and it was hit from the front. And then the, uh, the headshot. Did Lee Harvey Oswald kill President John F. Kennedy? No, had nothing to do with it. We were told that one bullet made all of these wounds. What's the opposite of that? The opposite would be that every wound was made by a different bullet. We have a shot proceeding on a downward trajectory, passing through on a straight line through Kennedy's body. And at this point right here, it would have to stop in midair, make a right turn a couple inches, stop again, make a left turn, and proceed on to hit Governor Conway. Oswald did not and could not have fired the fatal shot that killed our president. You hear that magic bullet theory. There's a great scene in Oliver Stone's JFK uh, where Jim Garrison, played by by Kevin Costner, lays out this magic bullet theory and how preposterous it seems that the the you know the bullet that killed or hit Kennedy and also hit Governor Conley could have come from from that Texas book depository. You know, in what happens in JFK, the plot it's kind of similar to Lane's version of events. Our, our guest, it's it's that this New Orleans cell with Oswald kind of helps set up Lee Harvey Oswald as the killer with the help of the mafia, the CIA, other elements of our government. It claims that Ferry was responsible. He was Oswald's handler. The prosecutor in the case, the real-life prosecutor, Jim Garrison, uh, he calls Ferry one of the most important figures in American history. We talked to, to Lane Marcus just about the movie JFK. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. Um, but it does have a lot of similarities to to the theory that Lane is laying out for us today. Ferry is played by Joe Pesci, who does, a, I think, a fantastic job of playing him in that movie. Uh, it's a, quite a long movie. The JFK uh, movie it did a great service to people who are interested in uncovering the truth because it led to the uh, JFK Records Act of 1992. The movie JFK focuses on things that Jim Garrison sees going on in his backyard. 
And, uh, you know, he had some people come and confess to him that, that David Ferry and Guy Bannister and Clay Shaw were involved with the assassination of JFK. But he, he wrongfully focuses on Clay Shaw, uh, Jim Garrison does. So the reality is that David Ferry and Guy Bannister were the chief orchestrators of the JFK assassination. J I mean, Ferry and Bannister's job was to sheep dip Oswald, make it, you know, b help build the backstory that he had, is this, you know, uh, uh, anti-America, uh, pro-communist guy, and also to physically keep an eye on him and keep tabs on him until the thing happens to make sure that he doesn't slip away and he's around to be framed. Jim Garrison's investigation into the Kennedy assassination and its connections in New Orleans, it goes public in 1967. And David Ferry's at the center of it. Cleveland, Ohio's own David Ferry is under investigation by Garrison and his prosecutors. And he tells Garrison's aide right after this article comes out saying that this investigation is, is underway, um, that he's going to be killed, that this is a death, you know, death sentence for him uh, because of this investigation going public. He's under protection from the prosecutor's office in the week following the story. Um, you know, the New Orleans district attorney is investigating this New Orleans connection to the JFK assassination. And they're talking with David Ferry, and they're actually offering him protection. They put him up in a hotel. Yet a week later, he's discovered, David Ferry's discovered in his home, and he's dead. Just a week after Jim Garrison's story that a new investigation and indictments were coming down, involving the Kennedy assassination, and suddenly Ferry shows up dead. It's pretty suspicious. I don't care if you don't believe it or not, but Ferry's death is suspicious. And he's not the only one who dies under pretty shady circumstances. Like Garrison said, it's a pretty weird coincidence uh, that, that Ferry dies. I think he said that kind of tongue-in-cheek. We talked to Lane Marcus about Ferry's death and how it all fits into the big picture. Within about 10 days of, of the news getting out, David Ferry actually said, I'm a dead man, uh, as soon as he, uh, as, as soon as the news was out that he was being talked to. Um, the circumstances of his death were that uh, he, he basically, they said it was a suicide, um, and, and they also said it was natural causes. So the government's position was suicide. The coroner's position was natural causes. The thing is, the time, the timing of it's interesting, and also uh, uh, Guy Bannister is killed at the same time. So they killed Guy Bannister and David Ferry, who are the people who were responsible for, th that's the most obvious link to Oswald, and in fact, the CIA has admitted this link. So the CIA has admitted that Oswald and Ferry and Bannister all knew one another, and the CIA has also admitted that Ferry was a CIA agent. I think Garrison sensed that Ferry was the connector of things. Garrison never, because Ferry was killed and because the information just hadn't come out then at that time, it was too hot. Uh, he didn't, he sensed there was something else Ferry was involved in, but he didn't know what. So he knew he was involved with the CIA, but he didn't know that he was involved with training the anti-Castro Cubans and with um, uh, being Carlos Marcello's personal pilot. I mean, that's yeah. so. It, the the parties involved in this are Project ZR Rifle, which is CIA mafia uh, Cuban exiles, which is then approved by Lyndon Johnson, who was the new to be president, and Texas Oil. His money interest uh, helped provide finance. Actually, paid money for the uh, assassins, um, and. Uh, 
the FBI uh, helped cover it up. That's basically the, the tracks of it all together. And David Ferry is at the heart of Project ZR Rifle. House Select Committee on Assassinations, a congressional committee interviews hundreds of witnesses and delivers a report that contravenes the Warren Report, the report given uh, just after the assassination that was given so much credence. This is a congressional committee investigation that finds that Oswald did not act alone. I'd never heard of it. You know, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, the HSCA, we talked to Lane about the HSCA's investigation's findings and why we really haven't heard that much about it. This is a you know a select committee, congressional committee, saying that a conspiracy did take place. We talked to, to Lane about the HSCA. Sorry, HSCA in particular, uh, for that one, it's a kind of a watered-down conclusion. So if you'll notice, they, they conclude that uh, their final conclusion was that there were two shooters, which de- which is by definition a conspiracy, but only one shot fired from the front and it missed. So ultimately, the single the, everything they said before is still intact, right? But that's a big oh. So you just got some guy who fired a shot that you're not going to go try to find. They also ruled that Carlos Marcello had the means, motive, and opportunity to do it, and it was a compromise. It was a compromise conclusion. Just hey, we did it. Now let's never talk about it again. So to answer your question, why have, do we not know about it? Well, there's actually documents on this too. There's something called Project Mockingbird, where the CIA paid journalists in, uh, in newspapers and television to plant stories or to not cover certain stories. Now, oh, is this just some crazy guy on Alex's podcast saying this? No, there's a little guy named Carl Bernstein who uh, discovered something called Watergate. Uh, he's the one that wrote the story on this 1977 Rolling Stone expose, but it was never really covered after that. I believe that Project Mockingbird continues today, and I believe that really because anytime you hear anyone talk about the JFK assassination in mainstream media, so these these news uh, these record releases over the last few years is where it's popped up recently, you'll never hear the mainstream media reference the JFK assassination and not say conspiracy theorist. And not, and not basically phrase it in terms of, well, isn't this just going to be the fodder for some crazy conspiracy theorist? Ha, ha, ha. Well, it's going to rain today, Bob. Back to you. Yeah. Uh, so there's the deal is you're not allowed to actually look at it um, and, and challenge the official story critically unless you just say, yeah, that doesn't make sense. But once you start to say specifics, now you're crazy. It's always been so frustrating. You know, the Soviets, the mafia, LBJ, the FBI, the CIA... Fidel Castro, the anti-Castros, Cubans. There's so many conspiracy theories out there that I could just never cut through them all to, to really figure it out. And so it's easier to just leave it alone and go about living my life. Um, but we got into this episode, we got talking with our guest, and I finally just asked Lane, in his opinion, what happened? And some of the biggest things for me is if Oswald wasn't a government asset, if Ferry was working with the CIA and was was Oswald's handler. Like, if he wasn't the only shooter, like the House Select Committee on Assassinations say, there's something more going on here. Will we ever know? Um, I doubt it. You know, just a, a couple of years ago, one of the things I thought Trump would do 
is he said he was going to release all these JFK documents. Um, and right when the day came to release them, they still held back hundreds of documents, blacked the things out. I mean, it's been 56 years since JFK was assassinated. When will we find out? Will we ever find out? And is this the biggest conspiracy in American history? That's where I was in my early life on the JFK assassination. I, you know, this has always been something that was interesting to me because I look at it and I go, wait a minute, the front of his head didn't explode, the back did. I know how physics works a little bit. Uh, and then I go, wait a minute, the guy who killed the president was killed the next day before he could talk to anybody and he said he was a patsy so that just i mean i was interested from from the get-go but you're right that's the big wall it's just a wall of complexity and and what do you do and, and yeah i do think that's intentional so let me break that wall down really fast for you i, I can i can give you the the summary so it's like an onion peel and so the layer for the general public that's intended is lee harvey oswald lone nut that's the outer onion okay you go into the next layer of the onion peel. This is not intended for the general public, but it is intended for the Warren Commission. It's intended for people who are in high society who need to know the real story. And that story is Russia and Cuba were working with Oswald. He was an assassin. There is a conspiracy. There was another shooter, and that person is a Russian. And listen, uh, uh, you know, uh, Earl Warren, uh, if you want the United States to continue and you want life as we know it to continue and there are not to be another world war, you're going to have to lie. A, a nuclear war, right. I need all you guys to lie for your country. There's a great search YouTube for uh, uh, LBJ talking to Senator um, Senator uh, Russell. Yeah, basically trying to convince him to do this. And he goes on and says, like, you need to you're going to have to tell some lies for your country. <laughs> So, but everyone on the Warren Commission lied and we have to, do, to take action, which is going to lead them to take action that leads to a world war. So uh, they used that so that those folks wouldn't answer, wouldn't ask more questions because they knew that, that if I follow this rabbit hole, they didn't think, oh, it's going to lead me to the mafia connected with the CIA and Cuban exiles. They thought it would lead me to uh, Oswald connected with Russia and Cuba. So, so that's the second layer. The second layer is the lie told to the Warren Commission. The third layer, which is the actual truth, is, uh, is the, uh, the mafia, uh, the CIA and the Cuban exiles, which is already working together, Project Zero Rifle, and then LBJ and, and, uh, and, and uh, J. Edgar Hoover, uh, who were all friends and close together, by the way. These aren't just randos. These are all people in the same social circles. Uh, they found out what was already going to happen, and they blessed it and said, yeah, that's convenient for me, too. That's what happened, actually. Our book recommendation today is our guest Ray Shemansky's, his book, Fifty Shades of Grey's, Evidence of Extraterrestrial Visitation to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and Beyond. Uh, Ray's book, we put a link in the show notes. Uh, definitely pick it up. It's not just about Wright-Pat, although he has you know a unique perspective about Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, having been there for almost four decades of his life. But he also goes on a journey. It's written kind of gonzo style, but he goes to places like Exeter, New Hampshire, the site of a very famous uh, UFO event. Rendlesham in England, he goes to try and prove or disprove these things on his own journey. It's almost like a travel blog 
uh, book. But again, Fifty Shades of Grays, uh, evidence of extraterrestrial visitation to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and beyond. Thanks again so much to Ray Shemansky for joining us. Sorry, guys, it's been a super long episode. We had three stories. Uh, thank you again to our guest, Lane Marcus, talking to us about the JFK fa- assassination. Um, it's still one of the most popular conspiracies out there, uh, e- even to this day, some 55, 56 years later. Uh, thank you to him, and thanks so much to Dean Narciso talking to us about Stanley Meyer and the water car. Uh, what a cool story that is. And, and again, go check this stuff out for yourself. I'm not here to tell you that all three of these things happened in Ohio and they're true. Um, I'm just here to present them. We're not going to do a bunch of conspiracy episodes in the future. So probably be our only one. Um, but we thought they were really interesting stories and they involve Ohio history. Uh, and we wanted to lay them out for you. And now it's up to you to, to decide. And you can say, Alex, I think these guys are all full of crap. Um, you know, I think Dean really was just a journalist. I don't think he believes either way. Um, but you know, let us know what you think, share the episode. Um, and again, whether you, you believe it or don't believe it, uh, that's totally up to you. So thanks again for joining us guys. Two episodes left. Thank you to our support from GoBus, RideGoBus.com, our, our friends, the bus service here in Ohio, they can get you anywhere you want to go. Again, check out their rides, uh, their routes and, and really cheap rates. I mean, like I said before, it's a $10 ride from Athens, Ohio to Columbus. Um, really good people over there, and we thank them so much for supporting us here in Season 3. We will see you guys in our next episode. We're going to be talking about the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage, the 19th Amendment, and how suffrage played out here in Ohio and nationally. We'll talk about the story of Harriet Taylor Upton and the suffrage movement. It's the 100th anniversary of that important uh, 19th Amendment. We've got multiple guests. It should be a really cool show. Uh, We've learned so much and can't wait to bring that one to you. So again, thank you for joining us. We will see you guys in a couple weeks for Ohio vs. Suffrage. Ohio View the World is brought to you by GoBus. Hit up RideGoBus.com and all Ohio bus service. Whether you're going from Cleveland to Cincinnati or the $10 trip from Athens to Columbus, you can recline in their comfy chairs or download our newest episode using their free onboard Wi-Fi. GoBus is the safest and classiest way to travel the Buckeye State. So make sure you check out RideGoBus.com for their routes and their cheap rates that'll get any Ohioan where they need to go in style. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.